Welcome to the Lincoln Way Christian Church Podcast. This live recording is brought to you from our Sunday morning worship service. Don't forget to also check out www.lincolnway.org. And now for this morning's message. I've been asked to help you to think about the family this morning for a few moments. And so uh, uh, I think I'll begin this way. I believe we're maybe in a case of mistaken identity right now in America, and I'm really going to think with you in terms of where the American family is, even beyond the church this morning, uh, because I think that will be helpful for locating us in our communities in terms of how we minister to our neighbors and want to relate to our neighbors. Several years ago, I had a serious case of mistaken identity when about this time of year, it was mid-April, I had been training for a race in southern Illinois, the river-to-river relay, where we run literally from the Mississippi to the Ohio. It's an 80-mile run. There are eight runners. Uh, Each of us does 10 miles. That year, it had fallen my lot to be the team manager, so I was to secure a van uh, for the eight smelly runners, and I went to my next-door neighbor who sells cars at Grau Chevy and asked him, do you think Mark Grau would sponsor us with a van? And Laz said, yeah. So I went out to the Grau dealership, and I, um, I was shown to a, a red late-model Chevy Astro van. It was a beautiful van. It would serve our purposes perfectly. Uh, Then I was escorted into the facility to sign some papers. They were treating it like a rental, and I got in a conversation with my neighbor. And while I was in conversation with him, they had to move my van because uh, a cargo truck came in with some parts that had to be delivered. So they moved my van. That cargo truck pulled in. Uh, He delivered his cargo and left And I'm still in conversation, locked in conversation with my neighbor, Laszlo. Uh, Meanwhile, Debbie Ebelhair, who is an employee of Growl, pulls into that same slot in her red, late model Chevy Astro van. And she left the keys in it. Yeah. So that weekend, I put over 500 miles on a stolen van. You know, I was driving by the prison there in Marion, Illinois. No idea that I belonged in the prison there in Marion, Illinois. Grand theft auto is serious business. And I had committed a crime and didn't know it. I was blissful. We ran our 80 miles and filled that van with all kinds of unnamed odors. You know, I was wondering all weekend, my goodness, it was nice of them to loan us this van, but they left us four cases of pop, you know? (laughs) How nice could they have been? I thought maybe Gatorade for runners would have been a little more healthy and maybe some granola bars. I don't know. You you shouldn't think like that. But they left us a windbreaker in case somebody got cold. I mean, it was... I should have caught on. I mean, you you get a rental van and normally the keychain does not have 12 keys on it. (laughs) Debbie almost called the police. I went to church Sunday, saw Mark and said, thank you for the van, and he said, sit down. We need to talk. And to make this long story shorter, I washed and waxed and vacuumed that van. I went to the florist to buy her roses, and uh, my wife still has not forgiven me for that. Um, 
the, uh, the, the florist said, what's the occasion? I explained it to her. She said, my keys are in the car. It's right out here in the parking lot. She pointed it out to me. No, I'm not going to make this mistake again. A case of mistaken identity too many times when I think about the family in modern America. Is there hope for the family? Some people would say no. It's been a tough period for the family. We think back several years to O.J. and Jean Benet and Bill and Hillary, and more recently Anna Nicole has been in the news, and a whole host of Hollywood breakups and get-togethers, and I can't keep track of that. And if you follow the various media, you might come to the impression that there really is no hope for the family. Thankfully, they don't tell the whole story. But almost every week, I hear of another deeply, deeply troubled family. And, you know, most of my acquaintances are churched people. So even as I come here this morning, I know that there is heartache in some of your families, our Christian families. And I know some of you are hurting. I've been hurt over the years from time to time because of things going on in family. Reminds me a bit the American situation, what was going on in the period of the judges. Tough days in ancient Israel. A book about a troubled nation and troubled families. I think about some of these families, about Gideon, his father. After Gideon, his father died, Abimelech. Uh, This new judge comes along the way to lead all of Israel. But through a deceptive conspiracy... He has 70 of his brothers killed. The text of Judges says, on a single stone. Now, I read just yesterday in the news of another murder, two murders, in fact, in the context of a family. And I read those things almost day. I almost have become accustomed to it. And and, and it's an amazing thing to think that I could even use the word become accustomed to reading about things like that. But in the American situation... We have become accustomed to this. And I say, God help us, we should never, ever become accustomed to this travesty. Then there, in the book of Judges, in the 11th chapter, there was this guy Jephthah, the old odd judge tucked away there, called to lead Israel against their sworn enemy, the Amorites. He made what appears a rash vow as he advanced into battle. He said, God, give us the victory and I'll sacrifice the first One who comes out of the door when I get home, and some of you know the story. He was thinking some beast would come out of the door, and his only child, his daughter, his unmarried daughter, came out of the door. And he uh, he withered. And he explained to her the situation, and she said, Dad, you've got to sacrifice me to keep your vow. Give me two months to wander the hills to lament my fate with uh, some of my friends. And that's what she did. And later, like a goat or a lamb, he sacrificed his daughter. And it's an unthinkable thing for us. And there's so many other stories about Samson and Delilah. Samson, who didn't shoot straight with his pouting Philistine wife in chapter 14 of Judges. Delilah, through whose deceit... (laughs) Eventually, Samson loses his own strength. It was a crazy period for the family. 
And so there's little surprise in my mind when I read the book of Judges that it ends with these words in Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. I guess, though, thousands of years later, after the coming of Christ, after the teaching of Paul on the family, I'm just a a tad disappointed. No, I'm really very disappointed that we have not learned the lessons of history when it comes to the family. Because people are still walking out of each other's lives after apparently faithful commitment with no signs whatsoever. You wake up one day and boom, she's gone. He's gone. No warning. Or maybe we haven't been paying attention to the signs. I had a student in my office years ago crying his way through class that morning. And so I invited him into the office. We talked. I found out that his youth minister, his mentor, a married man that very day had left home with another woman, just up and left his wife and family. That's all. No warning whatsoever. Just left. And it happens more than I'd like to think it did. This problem has a lot of frustrating angles, but I think we're opening the discussion in all the wrong places when we begin with anything other than a conversation about husband and wife. So often we start with the kids, and that's good. One day I looked at several web pages on the family, and one by one I saw this emerging pattern. Family means how to raise children, and that's very important. You know, ten steps to successful child-rearing, five principles for raising your children, how to cope with your teens, Google family, and those are the things you begin to see. On and on it went, all these web pages about the family, and fundamentally the attention was drawn to the children, and that's so important. But does that mean that married couples without children do not constitute a family? (laughs) Hardly. Or does that mean that married couples with children honor their vows only for the children's sake? I don't think so. Don't get me wrong on this point. I'm all for raising great kids, but the approach, I think, is is wrong. It's bottoms up. The Bible talks about raising kids, but it begins with Adam and Eve. It begins with one lonely man in a very large creation in that garden, very much in need of companionship. And I want you to notice that when God created another human being for Adam, in the first place at least, it was not a child. Can you imagine how that would have been had he chosen to do so? And Adam was not some hermaphrodite like an earthworm bearing young all by himself. No, God made a woman for Adam. God made Eve. And then came Cain and Abel. And after the creation of Eve, the text tells us, the man is going to leave his father and mother and he's going to cling to or cleave to his wife, not at least in the first place to his children. There were no children in the beginning. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks a whole lot more about how husbands and wives are to love each other. Before he gets to chapter 6 and talks about how parents are to deal with their children, he spends considerable time 
commenting on that loving foundation and how, how husbands are supposed to mimic Christ and his love for the church, for example, in their relationships with their wives. There's an order to this thing, folks. It is a divine order. Husband and wife first, then mom and dad. Having said that, we'll say, well, what's next? And I would say this. Once the children arrive in so many homes, we need to ask this question. Where is dad? (laughs) That's right. It's a little old, but in 1978, one of my favorite pastoral psychologists wrote, we're facing a generation which has parents but no fathers. A generation in which everyone who claims authority because he's older, more mature, more intelligent, more powerful, is suspect from the very beginning. Henry Nouwen, the wounded healer. Did you read the book Into the Wild? It's the tragic story of a guy named Chris McCandless, a graduate of Emory University down in Georgia, a guy who traveled deep into the heart of the Alaskan wilderness. He was trapped through natural causes one spring and could not return to civilization and starving mistook some toxic seeds for something that was healthy and eventually this took his life. Now outwardly the plot in this book Into the Wild is one about a young man who swept up in an adventure and he takes off for the Grand Canyon and he takes off up the west coast in his car and eventually he abandons that And he lives in an old, dilapidated, abandoned school bus uh, in the wilderness of Alaska for a time. But there is a subplot running its way through this book. And it's the subplot of a boy and his father who had deep, deep emotional, psychological problems and tensions within that relationship. It sounds a lot like he had trouble managing the baggage from home to me. Folks, I used to go up to Portland, Maine every spring. I went there for five consecutive years and took a group of six, eight, ten students with me. And I found out that Portland serves as kind of the end of the I-95 corridor. And a lot of troubled teens end up in Portland. They end up in soup kitchens. They end up in homeless shelters. They end up selling and doing drugs. They end up in circumstances of life that grieve their parents and family. And it's a very, very traumatic thing. Church in Portland, if it's going to be effective, has got to be a church that knows how to minister to kids who are runaways. Now one asks us, where is Father? I'll tell you where he could be. He could be at his daughter's softball game or his son's piano recital. He could, be, he could be away for a weekend with his wife at a bed and breakfast. I haven't had one of those in a while. I'm due. Then again, he could be at the tavern night after night. Or he could be working late again and again and again. Or away on business trips constantly. Or maybe playing Texas Hold'em four nights a week until one o'clock in the morning. And that's the story for a lot of folks. Or it could be worse, and you know that. That's where it could be. Where is your husband? Where is your dad? Where are your fathers? Where are your neighbors who are fathers? 
How are we going to bring sense and sensibility back to what it means to being a man of God? Oh, we could rehearse the factors that lead to this. We could talk about gender blending and role confusion, Mr. Mom and feminism. We could talk about the radical need for a godly, caring, vulnerable, but strong masculinity in the men who are leading in these homes and our churches. God knows that Israel needed leaders in the period of judges, and so do we. We could talk about a lot of things here, but the real question is that question. It is that burning question of location. Where is Father? Where is his presence in the home? Where his influence uh, with his wife and among the children? Is his love evident? If there is to be hope for the home, we've got to locate Dad. We've got to bring him back. And when it gets home, he's got to learn how to be present to the family. But that's not all. Do you remember P.D. Eastman's wonderful book, Are You My Mother? Have any of you read that book to your children? Do you know this story? Have any of you kids heard that book, begun to read it maybe to your siblings? Do you know that story? A mother bird sat on her egg. The egg jumped. Oh, said the mother bird, my baby will be here. He'll want to eat. I've got to get something for my baby to eat, she said. I will be back. And so away she went to get her baby something to eat. And sometimes I think that's our dilemma. In order to feed baby, in order to clothe baby, in order to pay bills, in order to buy the house, in order to get the medicine... Mom has been forced from the nest just as baby has come into this world. There are a lot of reasons why this might have happened. And I doubt this is a big one among you, but it really may be among your neighbors. Militant feminism has gotten into mom's head. Dad's become the enemy. The whole system is evil. Mom's got to change things. He's not going to help. And in order to change things, she's got to leave the nest. Or more likely, maybe she's been made to feel unproductive in the nest since other moms are out catching lots of worms and doing great things for other birds. I can't tell. I can only ask with that little... Baby, are you my mother? And do you remember in the book, the baby asked everyone, Are you my mother? He asked a kitten. Are you my mother? He asked a hen. Are you my mother? He asked a dog, a cow. He asked a boat. He asked a plane. And then he asked a snort. And I don't remember what the snort was. Something like a dragliner. I don't know. But he was confused. Are you my mother? Let me ask this question this morning. Let's ponder it for a moment. Whose influence equals that of a godly mother? Of the woman who carried you in her womb and bore you into this dark world, whose influence? Think about that. All too often, ours is a broken, divided family spinning recklessly out of control. Children have replaced parents with peers as their dominant role models in life. Pray for peers. Raise godly peers. 
Fathers have left true vocation for a fake ID, a false ID, a false self. Men, again, I urge you to accept your true calling as godly husbands and fathers. Mothers have received what amounts to an eviction notice in some cases, again, when the bills come due. They have no choice but to go to work. We can really help our neighbors on this one, folks, when we identify those mothers who are very much in need. It's time to reach out to them. Women of God, never forget what Lincoln said. No one is poor who has a godly mother. Everyone has paid a high price today. Remember, everyone did what was right in his own eyes in the period of Judges. I don't think we're quite there yet. My question to you this morning is, who's going to get us out of this mess? And I say I've been preaching from Judges. I read that one verse at the end of it. Do you know the next book of the Bible? Can you name it? What happens when you turn the page of the Bible? Oh, I'm seeing Job. I went too far this morning. You know, the next book of the Bible is Ruth. Ruth. I ask you to turn the page. Because the very first line in the book of Ruth is this. In the days when the judges ruled. You remember what those days are like. I've painted that picture. Do you hear what lies behind these lines? In the days when the judges ruled. Days of idolatry and abandonment. Of child sacrifice. Days of godless rebellion and mass murder. Maybe days a little bit like what we experienced in recent days. At Virginia Tech. In those days... In those days, there was a woman named Ruth, a godly woman from a godless land, Moab, a woman who was profoundly faithful to her mother-in-law, sworn enemy of Moab. In days like that, and in days like these, there was and there is hope for the family. Because the story moves us from national apostasy, on the one hand, to a woman's devotion. From macro to micro, from evil people to a few godly heroes, and from despair to hope, and from fear to confidence, because the story moves us from disobedience to obedience and surrender. And in that context, there is hope for the family. There is Ruth in the days when the judges ruled. Now, in that book, you may remember the story, Naomi leaves with her husband from Bethlehem, which means house of bread in days of famine, and moves to Moab. And there her sons marry. And one of them marries Ruth. The trouble is, the sons die. And so Naomi, who's left Bethlehem, the house of bread behind, to go to Moab, now not only has little to eat, but the sons are gone, and she's going back home. And one of the most tender verses in all of Scripture shows up as Ruth, her new daughter-in-law, says, I'm going to go with you. And Naomi says, no. And Ruth says, yes. It's stubborn love. It's surrender. Folks, hear this. Naomi was authentic. When I read the first chapter of Ruth, especially verse 11, Naomi says, return home, Ruth. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Go home, daughters. She's a realist. 
I could read more. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord, she says, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There is no blessing. This woman was a hard-nosed realist. She was the genuine article. She did not walk away from the hard facts or brush things under the carpet. Families, we're going to have to face our problems squarely, seek that kind of help which will put us back on the track of faithfulness that will help our neighbors through their problems. We're going to have to turn back to the church, back to the book, back to God. We're going to have to dig deep into our souls and face our insecurities and name our ambitions and surrender our self-interests and care for the people around us and be attentive to them. We're going to have to go to counseling in some cases, maybe 12-step programs in others. We're going to have to pray until we have really prayed, and we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and work at what really matters in life. We're going to have to love. We're going to have to be authentic like Naomi. But we're also going to have to be loyal like Boaz, this kinsman redeemer who in the book of Ruth marries a much younger woman because the text says it was his responsibility to do so. And he gladly did so. He kept the terms of God's covenant. Chapter 4 tells us all about it. He dug in. He did his part. He both provided for Ruth's every need, making sure that she had something to eat and a place to sleep, and he married her. He took care of her because Boaz knew faithfulness to God's law and God's demands. He was loyal to God's word. So the authenticity of Naomi and the loyalty of Boaz are followed finally this morning by the determination of a young lady who was going to get it right for the sake of family, the determination of Ruth. Ruth was an alien in Israel, but she would have it no other way. She was stubbornly Naomi's. She was a family girl. The most famous verse in the entire book of Ruth shows up in 116 where she says to her mother-in-law, to her mother-in-law, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And it is that kind of stubborn love and determination that will carry us into the future safely in the hands of God as a family of God where everyone belongs, where everyone is equally loved and cared for. I close today with this illustration of authenticity and loyalty and determination. The night I finished this sermon, I got a phone call from a trusted friend who in turn had received a phone call from a girl whose father had disappeared. As best they could tell, he had parked near a field and was wandering around somewhere between the stalks of corn. And that evening, we traveled row after row of corn, flashlights in hand, looking for a lost family member. Here was an elderly man limping, literally limping, between the stalks. Here was another elderly man whose own family was suffering greatly at this point in time. Here was a man whose father was an alcoholic 
And here was a young father whose 13-month-old died and whose second son had enormous physical problems to deal with. And here in this row was the son of the missing man carrying his flashlight among us as well. Together, we walked through those, those rows of corn with our lights, looking for a man who was lost. Countless other untold family stories wandering around in the corn stalks at 10.30 that night. And I wonder, why, why were these people doing this? It was hardly self-serving. Folks were missing out on good sleep. It was a weeknight. People had to be on the job at 7 o'clock in the morning. Kids had to go back to school, but they were out there that night. What were they looking for? Who were they looking for? I think they're people who are flirting with the problems and the struggles that we face in the period of the judges. And folks, they were ready to turn the page for this family. They wanted to hear the good news of redemption in the family. They wanted to read Ruth. They were dissatisfied with judges. They were searching for the truth. They were looking for family out there, perhaps their own family. They were hoping to find a man alive, if a bit lost or disillusioned, nonetheless alive. And that's what I want to ask this morning. Isn't that what you want in your families? Isn't that what all of us want? Hope for the family, for that member of your family who has wandered away and seemingly somehow will never come back. And you never give up because the love is too stubborn. And God keeps calling you back. Now is the time to roll up your sleeves and walk hand in hand because the light is dim and the darkness runs deep. But together, <laughs> we can search those, those aisles those rows of need and neglect, of disillusionment and loss, it's because God is in it, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, because lost loved ones show up in the oddest places when the light of grace, even just a little bit of it, is applied. It's authenticity. It's about loyalty. It's about determination. It's about a stubborn love. Never give up on the family. Never, ever, ever give up on the family.